Hello, and welcome to All Things Plantagenet. My name is Donnie Hazel, and I am your host. To all of my original listeners, welcome back. To those new to the show, welcome. I am a storytelling historian with a great love for the Plantagenet dynasty, as I am a direct descendant to Geoffrey of Anjou via my paternal line on my grandmother Carter's side. I descend through Diana Skipwith, daughter of Sir Henry Skipwith and Amy Kemp. Diana married Captain Thomas Carter. They immigrated to the Americas in 1650, settling in Barford in Lancaster County, Virginia. So with that said, please like and download the show as it helps other listeners learn about the show. If you wish to support this podcast, there is a link for you to do so, and it would be much appreciated as it would help with costs of maintaining the website www.allthingsplantagenet.com where you can find the podcast as well as extra items for each episode you can read or download. You can also find great books and videos for sale as well. Feel free to also visit our Facebook page. A link is provided as well on the website. Okay, on to the episode. Chapter 7 of King and Baronage, A.D. 1135-1327 by William Holden Hutton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. The Reign of Edward II, 1307-1327 Edward II was a very different man from his father. He was unlike any of his ancestors who had reigned in England. All the Angevin kings had loved to rule, whether they governed well or ill. Edward cared for none of those things. He would have been happy as a baron with half a dozen country manors to look after, or as a wealthy merchant dealing liberally with artists and craftsmen. As a king he was utterly out of place. His father had loved work. He loved nothing but ease. He was weak where his forefathers had been strong, and without being actively vicious he had no active virtue. It was an age when no king could afford to be idle, and the idleness of Edward II was his ruin. The new king began by disregarding his father's last injunctions. Edward I had been a severe parent, had punished his son's faults, and had tried earnestly to train him for a life of business. Now that he was free, the son seemed only to despise his father's memory. He had been instructed to carry on the Scots war with vigor. He left it immediately to the charge of Aymer de Valence. His bosom friend, Piers Gaveston, a young Gascon knight, brave but insolent, who had been brought up with him, had been banished by his father. Edward II recalled him at once and made him Earl of Cornwall. He then crossed to France to marry Isabella, daughter of Philip the Fair, and he left Gaveston as regent of the kingdom. On February 25, 1308, the king and queen were crowned at Winchester, and the king took an oath to hold and keep the laws which the community shall have made, a clear sign that men knew how great power under Edward I had come to the commons. But such a policy was not one to propitiate the baronage, who took the occasion of the accession of a weak king to assert their own claims to be the real rulers of the land. And while the king was weak, the barons had a strong leader. 
Thomas, Earl of Lancaster, was the king's cousin. He was the son of that Edmund to whom the Pope had given Sicily in the time of Henry III. He had married the daughter of Henry de Lacy, Earl of Lincoln, the faithful minister of Edward I. He was High Steward of England and Earl of Lancaster, Derby, and Leicester, and in right of his wife he would succeed to the earldoms of Salisbury and Lincoln. His ambition was as great as his possessions, and he lost no opportunity of increasing his power and making his opposition felt. At the king's first parliament the barons united against Gaveston, and the king was forced to banish him. He turned the disgrace into an honour by making him regent of Ireland, but the removal of the favourite did not make the king govern well. Parliament was not called again for eighteen months, and the king obtained money from Italian bankers the Frescobaldi, who collected the customs which he farmed out to them. When Parliament met, the commons were as active as the lords in protest against misgovernment, but the king foolishly recalled Gaveston, and in three months Gaveston had again raised the hatred of the great earls against him. The Earl of Warwick, Guy Beecham, had always been his foe. Lancaster had remained neutral. Now he and the earls of Lincoln, Oxford, Arundel, Hereford, and Pembroke turned against the favourite. In March of 1310 the Council of Barons demanded redress of grievances, and twenty persons were appointed to make ordinances to the honour and advantage of Holy Church, to the honour of the King, and to his advantage and that of his people, according to the oath which the King took at his coronation. The Lord's ordainers included Archbishop Winchelsea, now returned from banishment, Warwick, Lancaster, and Lincoln. They produced to the Parliament in 1311 the Ordinances of London. By these Gaveston was banished, and the Frescobaldi were to be dismissed. In future, all great officers of state were to be appointed with the counsel and consent of the barons, and without such consent, no war was to be made and no forces were to be summoned, nor was the king to leave England. The ordinances were the last great constitutional document embodying the baronial claim to govern the country. They were strikingly similar to the provisions of Oxford in 1258. They utterly ignore the great work of Edward I in admitting the commons to a share in the work of legislation. They reduce the king to a cipher, and the third estate to a mere consenting but unconsulted party. But Edward was too weak to resist. He accepted the ordinances, 5th October 1311, but at the beginning of the next year, as he marched to Scotland, he recalled Gaveston and gave him back his estates. The barons at once prepared for war. They marched into Yorkshire, besieged Gaveston in Scarborough Castle, and compelled him to surrender May 19, 1312. Then, as he went southwards to answer for his deeds at the Parliament that was summoned, he was carried off by the Earl of Warwick and beheaded on Blacklow Hill, two miles from Warwick, on June 19, 1312, in the presence of Thomas of Lancaster. His fate was the result of the king's folly and his own greed, and he had made the baron's jealousy irreconcilable by his flouts and jeers. Warwick he had called the Black Dog of Arden, and Lancaster the Mummer. The nicknames were dearly avenged. Edward was too weak to avenge his death. 
the Pope, the Earl of Gloucester, whose sister was Gaveston's wife, and the king's own brother-in-law, Philip of France, gave counsels of peace, and Edward professed to be reconciled to the earls who had done the deed. Year by year, indeed, he lost the little strength he had had. His father's method of constitutional government was superseded by the method of the ordainers. Archbishop Winchelsea died in 1313 and was succeeded by the Chancellor Reynolds. Henry de Lacy, too, was dead, and Lancaster now held his earldoms. Thus in England the king was more than ever the creature of the barons and their leader. All this while affairs in Scotland had been going from bad to worse. Robert Bruce had captured almost all the chief towns and castles. Stirling still held out, and Edward determined to relieve it. But Lancaster and the barons who had been intriguing with Bruce, and who by no means wished to see their king a successful general, refused to follow him to the war because the consent of the baronage in Parliament had not been asked as the ordinances required. Edward nevertheless gathered a great army. He had thirty thousand horsemen, besides many irregular levies from Wales and Ireland, as well as England, and a body of good archers. The armies met at Bannockburn near Stirling, June twenty-third, 1314. Bruce had a much smaller force, and they were mostly footmen, but he had the advantage of having chosen the ground, and he had digged rows of pits which he fitted with stakes to protect his own position and check the charge of the English knights. The English archers were driven back, and the furious onset of the knights failed to break the Scots' stubborn squares of pikemen. The confusion that followed led to flight, and when the feeble king turned his rein, all the English troops streamed from the field in disorderly rout. The gallant young Earl of Gloucester, Edward's own kinsman and his only true friend, was left dead on the field. The Battle of Bannockburn won the independence of Scotland, and it completed the ruin of the English king. Revolts began in Ireland and Wales. The latter was soon checked, but in Ireland Edward Bruce was crowned king, was joined by his brother, the King of the Scots, and for three years ravaged the land, doing great damage, till in October 1318 he was defeated and slain near Dundalk by the lords of the English Pale, that is, the district in which the English ruled. Lancaster now ruled supreme in England. He made the king dismiss his ministers, put him on an allowance, and required that he should live of his own that is, on his income from land and feudal dues and without taxation. Robert Bruce conquered all Scotland and even captured Berwick, and Thomas of Lancaster would not oppose him. In England there was nothing but confusion and private war. In 1318 a new council was appointed, but Lancaster was still supreme. In 1319 Edward made another attempt to recover Scotland, but was driven back, and the Scots invaded England and defeated the Yorkshire militia at Mitten Bridge, a fight called the Chapter of Mitten because so many clergy were slain. All this while Lancaster, though supreme, seemed to care as little as the king for the exercise of power. He would not attend Parliament, he would not fight the Scots, and the barons were gradually deserting him and dividing into parties. The king was winning over the earls of Warren and Pembroke, and the two dispensers, the elder of whom had been of Simon de Montfort's party in the Barons' War, were holding the position of his ministers. 
the heirs of the last earl of gloucester who fell at bannockburn were the husbands of his three sisters the younger dispenser roger damery and hugh of audley damery and lord battlesmere with pembroke formed a party to oust lancaster from power but they were by no means agreed on their course of action on the welsh marches the earl of hereford and roger mortimer would not keep order and came into conflict with the dispensers on july fifteenth thirteen twenty one the barons in parliament accused and condemned the dispensers as having interfered without authority in the government and having enriched themselves by the perversion of justice they were sentenced to forfeiture and banishment lancaster was again supreme but in october an insult to the queen offered by lady battlesmere led edward to raise an army with which he punished the offender and then marched on to seize the castles of hereford and damery lancaster had not interfered to save the battlesmeres he got together an army when it was too late the king recalled the dispensers and was soon at the head of a large force on march sixteenth thirteen twenty two the earl of hereford and the earl of lancaster were defeated by sir andrew harkley at boroughbridge hereford was killed and lancaster taken captive five days later he was tried for high treason in the castle of pontefract and was condemned he was executed as a traitor the king had at last won an unexpected triumph a parliament at york revoked the ordinances and declared that all matters to be established for the estate of our lord the king and his heirs the realm and his people shall be treated granted and established in parliament by our lord the king and by the consent of the clergy earls and barons and by the commonalty of the realm this was a return to the good rule of edward i and it showed that his son now claimed to rule the kingdom by the popular council and not as the barons wished only through the nobles but edward whatever his intentions seemed incapable of ruling well he marched against the scots but he had no success sir andrew harkley whom he trusted intrigued with bruce and was executed as a traitor at length a truce was made with the scots for thirteen years in may of thirteen twenty three it was a time of bad harvests and much misery among the poor edward left government wholly to the dispensers who proved greedy and thought only of enriching themselves so matters went on from bad to worse and at length even edward's wife turned against him in thirteen twenty three charles the fair the new king of france demanded that edward should do homage for his great french thieves of guienne and gascony the dispensers whose support lay only in the king refused to let him leave england at length he sent his wife with his young son edward whom he made duke of aquitaine and count of ponthieu at the french court she made friends of her husband's foes and she fell in love with the banished lord marcher roger mortimer a plot was arranged in which even the king's brother edmund earl of kent joined on september twenty fourth thirteen twenty six queen isabella landed at orwell earl henry of lancaster joined her with the remains of his brother's party and all the bishops too pronounced against the king edward fled to wales the dispensers were captured and hanged young edward was declared guardian of the kingdom and he summoned a parliament in his father's name 
then the king was captured and put in prison at kenilworth on the seventh of january thirteen twenty seven parliament met and was asked to choose between father and son no one save four honest bishops protested in favour of the king's rights the miserable archbishop reynolds uttered the wretched saying that the voice of the people was the voice of god six articles were drawn up as reasons for the deposition number one the king was incompetent to govern he ever chose ill counsellors and he could not tell ill from good number two he had always resisted good counsel and had spent his time in unworthy occupations number three by his lack of government he had lost scotland ireland and gascony number four he had injured the church and imprisoned exiled and slain many great men number five he had broken his coronation oath number six he had ruined the realm and could not mend himself on january twentieth the articles were sent to the king by the hands of twenty-four representatives of all classes in parliament he admitted their truth and resigned the crown he lingered on for eight months while england was ruled by isabella and mortimer with savage cruelty henry of lancaster first had charge of the deposed edward but he was soon transferred to less scrupulous hands on september twenty first thirteen twenty seven he was murdered in berkeley castle men said in a horrible way thus miserably perished the son of the great edward a man who might have ruled with his people's love as he was left with the strength of his father's government no more piteous tale of mere idle refusal of goodness and of honest work is to be found in english history and certainly no more piteous retribution it was a true king that men in the fourteenth century needed and edward the second was no king in heart or in mind weakness often meets a harsher fate than crime but edward's weakness was a crime no less than a failure End of chapter 7